Hello and welcome to the Podagogy Podcast, the podcast that aims to bridge the gap between teaching, coaching and all things pedagogy. This week I am joined by Dan Williams. Dan is a programme leader and senior lecturer at the University of Derby. In this episode we discuss the issues with learning styles, we looked at feedback and assessment as well as discussing Dan's current work within his PhD regarding discourses of skill. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to the podcast Dan, thank you for joining me today. I think a good place to start would be for you to tell the listeners just a little bit more about yourself um, around your background and where you're at now and, and the work you're doing there. Okay yeah so Dan Williams, I'm currently a program leader and senior lecturer at the University of Derby and I work primarily on the FE teacher training programs there and with that I work primarily with those that are wanting to seek sport in in FE um, which is my background so prior to this role I, I started teaching oh gosh 2008 I think it was I teach sport at, at a college in the Midlands and I was there for about six years and then progressed into like quality type roles so I was working across a college also in the Midlands a different one and um, and then I was offered the opportunity to work in another college in a, a quality role but also doing a bit of their in-service teacher training and um, was there for a short while just over a year and and then the job at Derby came up and I've been there for getting on for six years now so quite a while um, prior to that prior to me uh, joining my first college I was um, I was always sort of sports coaching of some description so I did a lot of swimming teaching uh, a bit of football coaching a bit of multi-sports coaching um, but my, I suppose much of my industry experience came through personal training and, and fitness instruction which I did alongside my studies so um, throughout my degree I was working nearly 30 hours a week looking back I have no idea how I did that but I was working about 30 hours a week as a, as a fitness instructor and personal trainer and so obviously prior to the formal teaching there was lots of coaching and instruction uh, and things like that. No that's great that's fantastic um, so I guess the purpose of this podcast was I'm someone such as yourself who comes from a, a coaching background and then more recently into to teaching and having to understand both sides of the coin I feel as if there are a number of bridges between the two so you know the idea was to get people on such as yourself and, and, and people from also you know from the coaching world to to discuss teaching coaching learning and and all things pedagogy really so I think a, a good place for us to start would be with with learning styles um, and I know from from knowing you that um, you maybe have a couple of um, issues, let's say, with with the term learning styles and, and what that means. So it'd be great really to, to start there and, and get your thoughts on that um, and potentially some of the problems with learning styles or, or, or the term learning style in general. OK, um, so first off, I suppose it, I'll be a bit controversial um the premise behind learning styles isn't a bad one let's let's start there um i think the whole idea of, of inclusion and supporting each individual learner to meet their needs is 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 really important so that's good um 
but something never quite felt right to me. So when, when I started teaching, um, we had to ask every student to complete the learning styles inventory, uh, you know, the questions they have, you know, I like to read books or I like this. Uh, and then, of course, that, that revealed what their preferred style of learning was or what their learning style was. And he sort of labelled them based on that. And, you know, you get a visual, auditory, kinesthetic and whatnot. And then you had to put that into your uh, group profile at the time. I'm not sure if they, they still exist in the same, quite the same way, but it was a, a lengthy Word document with um, lots of details about the learner. So you put in there what they were. And then you'd ignore it for the rest of the year because you'd be teaching in the way that suited the content and you'd be trying different methods, try and connect with the learners anyway. So for me, from the outset, I just was like, why am I wasting all this time um, getting them to fill out this pointless questionnaire, which was so, so dependent on how they felt that day? You know, if they'd just read a... a it didn't often happen with sport learners, but let's say they just read a wonderful novel. They're going to come in and say, you know, I like reading. Um, and so, yeah, it just never quite felt right. So I was sort of always interested in, you know, why, why did this come about, where it came from, and, um, and, and never got sufficient answers from colleagues at the institution, from managers, from quality teams. Um, it was just, you need to do it because individuals you know that was the sort of message and uh, and so started to to them uh read a bit more of the literature around pedagogy full stop but you know obviously it took me down a path about learning with learning stars and eventually came across cofield et al's work from 2004 so that was um sort of a, a proper analysis of all the different learning styles inventories and the surprisingly it was about 70 odd that they came across and they did a proper investigation into 13 of what was seen as perhaps the most robust um and i mean i can't do Cofield's work justice but fundamentally they were they found that the learning styles were flawed there was no not always sort of uh, credible methodologies behind the you know these uh, approaches to suggest the learning styles worked. Um, and yeah, I, I, that sort of led me down that path of, okay, well, so why are we doing this? And I, and I came across Pashler. I don't know if you come across Pashler's work, Pashler and colleagues, they were they're from America and they did a big review of learning styles as well in, in I think it was 2006. Um, again, finding that, that none of the, the support for learning styles was grounded in sort of a credible research. It's sort of anything that was done to, you know, show that there was potentially a learning style um, was actually really biased. Um, and so that, that sort of led me down that um, idea. And then, and then when you think about pedagogy full stop, excuse me, let me just close my email so we don't get pop-ups. When you think about um, pedagogy and you look at some of the work by um, like, the Bjorks who talk about desirable difficulties and, you know, learning is meant to be challenging and for it to, for it to really stick, it's got to be a challenge. And the whole idea of learning styles is that you, you mesh the, the type of instruction, the mode of learning with what they 
really like, which is normally like trying to make learning easier for them. So it goes against the idea of actually learning should be quite difficult and challenging. Um, so that, that's called the meshing hypothesis. I don't know if you've ever come across that term, but uh, that idea is sort of a bit, a bit flawed when you think about it. And um, so, yeah, um, I, I don't know if that's answers your question. You have this case, uh, this, this way of rambling. And so um, I think we just have to, you know, I think there was probably more important things that we should focus on as teachers um, that can have much greater impact you, know, you can look at the work of John Hattie and visible is visible learning the education endowment foundation there's things that are quite high impact strategy yeah that's great I mean just through kind of a bit, a bit of reading of myself really and, and you look around you might see uh, learning style just rebranded you know reframed renamed as, as something like learning preferences which I guess in principle is still just learning styles um, in disguise and I mean got a little excerpt here from uh, a blog post of yours really uh, which again I'm paraphrasing but um, something along the lines of instead of recycling them let's just stick them in the trash once and for all and, and focus on the stuff that works so I guess my question for you is what what is the stuff that works what can we be doing instead what is the alternative to to learning styles or, or learning preferences I think for me um think about individuals and their needs if we if we go from that you know i started this this um, podcast from that premise of meeting learners needs and you know supporting them i think if we're starting there we need to think about what they come to us with what knowledge they have so focusing on the, the content um more than anything else not than how they learn because largely you know people might disagree with this but we learn fundamentally in, in the same way um yeah, there will be differences don't get me wrong but let's focus on the content we come in with lots of different knowledge now there's a researcher i think it's Carl binder it's only binder um who has uh, done a bit of work on what he calls cumulative disfluency so the idea behind that is that um if we are learning new content so say we're learning about addition and subtraction and multiplication and, and division and so on if we start trying to move on to doing higher level things so starting to do things like uh, fractions without getting without becoming fluent in the foundation aspects we become disfluent so we and we what we do is that accumulates because if we're disfluent say in division and then we go on to fractions and we can't do them we can become disfluent there it's that constantly in education we're moving on we're moving forward we're progressing and actually um there might be something fundamentally in the foundations that we need to we need to fix much like a, you know you a house you build a house you, you know, i'm not a house builder but you know if you get the foundations wrong there's gaps in it. There's the problems later down the line as you continue to build on that, you know, um, and that and that's what I think is more important. So actually really, really important that we focus our attention on what do the learners know when they come to us? What can they do? And once we establish that, then we can start filling in the gaps and helping them become more fluent. Yeah, no, that's good. That's, that's, that's a nice little link. So you talk there about knowing what they know already. So I think if we... If we move to looking at kind of assessment, um, mm -hmm. in particular initial assessment and, and finding out what they do know, I know that there can be issues with with poor initial assessment 
Um, or maybe maybe poor is a strong word, but um, what's a, what's a better phrase to use? I don't know. In ineffective 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 um yeah, initial yeah. assessment and kind of how problematic that can that can be mm. it'd be good just to get some get some thoughts on that and maybe things you see with with new teachers um with you know in people in, in initial training and maybe common issues you see and maybe some advice for for maybe overcoming those okay okay if i could just yeah thank you for muting i could hear myself <laughs> um okay so common thing we find with trainees is that they don't do initial assessment the, the students come into the classroom and they start teaching and they don't have a, a clue what their starting points are and and of course that's problematic because they might be going an overall ground for some they might be advancing too quickly for others and so on so um not doing any initial assessment is obviously not a good thing so and this and you know you initial, when we talk about initial assessment this is both at the start of a course of study i think that's really important getting that right because there's different different ways of viewing it so there's there's right what do they know about this you know say we're doing uh 12 weeks of anatomy and physiology what do they know about that let's get the starting point that's really important at the very beginning of the course but also then at the beginning of your sessions your learning periods whatever you want to call them there's got to be some sort of well what do you know about this bit we're talking about today what can you recall so um in order to do that, quite often you see teachers using quizzes, which are great. Multiple choice quiz quizzes are great, but the problems arise in the writing of the questions. Um, you know, and it becomes not a oh what can what I'm I'm checking what you already know. It's I'm checking can you figure out a way to the answer here. So quite often it'll be like uh, which of these is not the one, and then of course you know. It leads you, it's, it's, a, it's almost like you get double negatives in the question, which confuse people for a start. But then also things, you know, is it A, you know, capital of, is capital of um, France A, um, ah, this is a bad example, I'm not thinking this through. Anyway, it's, a, it, it's something, something, A, X, B, Y, C, Z, or D, all of the above. Well, normally when it's all of the above as an option, you select that because why would they put it? It's like, so you're not really assessing their knowledge, you're assessing their ability to sort of navigate these questions. And so for me, there's a lot of work that can be done in writing good multiple choice questions. And uh, Dylan William, um, who does a lot of work on formative assessment, he's also, he talks a lot about something called hinge point questioning. Now, he he uses that idea in the middle of lessons quite often. It's like as a hinge point to determine if they're ready to move on, which I think is really valuable. But the, the idea behind writing the question is also really important, I think, at the start of a session in terms of assessing where they're at. And um, the, the, the hinge point questions are, you, you do a multiple choice question and you have one correct answer but then three very plausible but incorrect answers and you've got and you use it in a in a way that's really quick and effective so like you know it might be um here's a multiple choice question i'm going to ask you to show me your responses in in three two one we count down and you can show me your responses by either holding up abc cards or fingers or whatever and so you're assessing everyone um and 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 that and that tends to be a really effective method if the questions are right. But of course, then, I mean, there's, there's, I could 
stem off into all sorts of, of um, areas of assessment here, but you've got things like, um, so you want to truly know what someone knows, you want to dig deep, don't you? You want to dig in, 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 and so I talk a lot to my trainees about depth of assessment. So it's all well and good doing the surface stuff, which quite often you, you in, your multiple choice questions do, but they don't always allow you to dig a bit deeper. So the how, the why, how does this relate to X? And, and so, um, you know, good initial assessment will do that in some form. And I'm, I'm sort of giving examples here where it's all very much uh, the teacher standing at the front and doing like a, a Q&A type thing. But of course, initial assessment can be a, a written essay. It can be something on paper or it could be a demonstration. So, um, you know, but I, I think the, the, the principles still apply across across the piece. Um, and, and yeah, so just talking about assessment full stop, I we, one of the things I'm drilling to trainees right from the beginning is when you're assessing, think about breadth, i.e. getting everyone involved. And I always use the example of catchphrase, and I'm sure you remember this day. So, you know, when you, we, we all, we've all watched the telly show catchphrase and it's like, you know, when you when they win the first point, they go to that bonus round and they they reveal a square, don't they? And it's like, well, revealing that one corner square, you can't see what the catchphrase is. So you can't have a good guess at what it is. But the more squares they reveal through the rounds, the more they see the picture and they can have a good stab at what it is. And I think that's the same with assessment. If you can reveal more about what your learners are thinking as, you, as you're doing your questioning and whatnot, it's, it's like that catchphrase. We can have a good guess at, well, we're about about 90% of them really do get this bit of content so I can move on or, you know, they really don't get it. So I need to reteach. So I think we talk, I talk a lot about breadth, uh, yeah, breadth of assessment, getting coverage, but then also depth. And so it's not always possible to just get that, um, to do a, a proper assessment on the surface level. We sometimes need to dig deeper and that's where the how, why questions in, maybe peer assessment, maybe self-assessment, because actually it's not always down to teach to do the assessment. It can be handed over to the, the learners to do that. So um, again, me waffling there, um, but I, I hope that sort of gave an idea of what I think good initial assessment looks like. No, that's great. And then I guess from, from assessment comes then feedback. Um, and I guess there can be a similar issue there that ineffective feedback, um, we may as well not give feedback at all so to hit you with a maybe a, a quite a wide open question i know we could we talk about things you know what does good look like modeling what good looks like but generally speaking how can we maximize feedback in the classroom or or otherwise because you know there might be coaches listening to this who aren't in a classroom so uh, i think someone like yourself from a, a practical and a sport and a coaching background can maybe shed some light on that and how what what effective feedback looks like yeah i perfect you you remind me of who might be listening to this because if, if I think about effective feedback, I always think back to my days as a coach rather than my days being trained to teach. Um, and when you learn, you know, you're doing all your coaches bad, coaching badges, one of the big things they drill into you is coaching points, coaching points, coaching points, coaching points. And that's your success criteria. And that's really important because if you don't have success criteria, you've got nothing to hang your feedback on. Otherwise, feedback becomes very sort of blurred and vague. It's like, oh, you did well. Whereas if I, if I know that my coaching point is, you know, 
when you're striking a ball, you got to hit it with your laces. You got to put, I'm doing a really crap example of football here, but you got to put your standing foot next to the ball, head over the ball. They're my coaching points. So when I'm giving feedback, I can say, great, Johnny, you put your head over the ball, you hit it with your laces. Next time, can we just make sure that standing foot's close to the ball? So I'm being very specific to what it is, you know, we're all aware of in the, in the environment because I've shared my coaching points. I've said, I've modelled it. I've said, these are the things we're looking for, folks. And if I can give my feedback against that, we know we're, we're doing a good job. If I've omitted the coaching points and the students, the coaches, whatever you want to call them, are not aware of them, any feedback is you know likely to be ineffectual. So that's that's my little tip on feedback. I don't know if it's any any good. <laughs> no, no, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, so I know at the minute you're doing um, still working towards um, your PhD. Is that mm. accurate? Yeah. Um, and I've got a vague understanding from from bits and bobs of seeing what you're looking at in terms of discourses of skill but just purely from a personal point of view i'd be interested to hear a bit more around what you are looking at what you've been looking at and maybe any kind of initial thoughts or findings that you're you've come up with really okay yeah i'll be get ready um so the the phd stems from my time in fe and uh particularly when i was in quality roles and uh, at one college, we had this, um, it was a 16 point employability framework that we all teachers had to sort of embed in their practice in some way, because obviously we're trying to make learners employable. You go again, like at the heart of it, there's a real you know, meaningful thing, but it just never quite felt right to me. It's another, it reminds me of learning stars in many ways. And uh, so I'd be going around the college like going, oh, how have you implemented one of the any of this stuff from uh, the sixteen point in, uh, employability thing into your into your planning? Oh well, I've I've put teamwork on my scheme of work, and that's when they're doing a group activity. It's like, yeah, I mean, what would I do? I, and I sort of started thinking, like, what would I do for all these? And some of them, these employability skills that are on this list, they weren't even what I'd call skills. There was things like confidence on there and resilience, and I was like. A bit at a loss here. I don't know how I do it. So how can I therefore support others? And and so this this sort of feeling never went away. And and of course, when I came to the university, it's still there, and it still really annoyed me because it was you know it's pushed on a lot of FE colleges to develop these wider skills and and attributes or whatever for for the learners. And I think again, the meaning behind it is is a good one. Um. So I then wanted to explore why is there this sort of fetish i called it with generic and transferable skills or 21st century skills or employability skills or keys and they've got all sorts of names if you look through the literature over the years and they've not really changed a great deal you get the same sort of stuff problem solving teamwork communication all the stuff we're still seeing now even if it's rebranded into the institution's own own ways of, of looking at them and um so I, I started my, my PhD with a philosophical inquiry. So I um, spent a lot of time reading about the philosophy of skill. And it, it was it's quite interesting to me. It won't be to you. But the idea is, that, you know, we've got this sort of common language for skill that has existed for oh, time, you know, um, 
generally that it's sort of something that tends to be practically based. Um, it's something that involves the technique, but isn't the technique on its own. It might involve decision-making. And fundamentally, it's subject to what they call normative appraisal. So normative appraisal is like, oh, um, Johnny can do X skillfully, whereas with knowledge, you, you don't have that normative appraisal. So you go, so Johnny knows the capital of France really well. Well, you either know it or you don't. So the, the, that's the difference between like sort of declarative knowledge, knowledge and skills is that the skills tend to be subject to that normativity. Um, so, yeah, um, did a bit of that. Started reading Chris Winch's work, which is really interesting if you're in technical vocational education. And he talks about how um, the term skill has become inflated beyond its original conception. And so there's, there's some of that inflation, he says, which is it's quite OK. You can understand it. So like mental arithmetic or, or um, like basic skills, mental arithmetic, you can sort of apply the same premise philosophically to that but then there's some that have just got a bit too inflated and it calls that immoderate inflation and so things like general skills like problem solving it says are really problematic because actually you have to add, add new knowledge and new skills to to be a good problem solver in a in a different domain so I always give the example of like you know if you gave me someone's diet and said right Dan solve the issue with this you know figure out what what they're doing wrong and yeah my, my it's been a while since I've looked at that sort of stuff but my my subject knowledge and background in in fitness and stuff should allow me to solve the issue for that individual but if you said to me Dan now go to apply your problem solving skills to my car that's just broke down on the side of the road I haven't got a Scooby. I've, I, I don't know. I would not know where to start. And so that idea that they can be transferred is, is problematic. And, um, you know, I need new knowledge. I need new ideas and things to be able to allow me to do that. So that's one problem with this inflation. And then inflation of what they call like social skills is that, you know, we can teach people to be good communicators. Well, that's really, really fraught with issues. Um, just think about the fact that communications normally involves more than one person so if i if i'm if you're teaching me to do something it takes away all agency from the person i'm doing that with so i'll give you an example like uh, empathy is one that's bandied around a lot now i'm terrible for empathy uh, because i've not experienced it i can't but you know if you were teaching me to be empathetic all you're teaching me to do is act, act empathetic because I'm not, because I haven't necessarily had your life experiences and stuff. So if I'm acting empathetic and, oh, oh, poor thing, pat on the head and all that sort of stuff, I'm actually manipulating you. It's really unethical when you think about it like that. I'm, I'm being, to teach someone to be empath empathetic is teaching them to manipulate others. And I really, it's problematic. So anyway, I've, I've waffled on again, but I was really interested in the philosophy and then I started exploring like social perspectives of skills. So the way that society says that if you've got a high level qualification, you're more skilled, you know, qualifications are used as proxies for skill. And it's like, well, that's not always the case, is it? Cause you know, you've got bloody skilled construction workers working on a construction site who might not have qualifications above a certain level, but 
you're saying just because I've got a level seven, I'm more skilled than that. It's really debatable. So there's, there's, that was really interesting avenue. So I've done a bit of literature review around that. And then, as you mentioned at the start, discourses of skill. So discourse is basically the way we communicate ideas. I'm really interested in the way that the government views skills and communicates that through policy and the way that we as practitioners interpret that and then communicate that to our, our learners. And so I'm finding lots of stuff at the minute, but, and you know, I'm four years in, excuse the ring doorbell going off in the background. Um, I'm four years in, I have findings, I'm analyzing it, but it's just not quite clear yet. I, I, I always tell people it's like I've got a pair of glasses on that have like steamed up and I'm start, starting to wipe it away but the the edges are still a bit steamed up so you forgive me for not going on any further but I'm sure you don't really want to hear me waffle on anymore anyway about that no no it'd be great to great to hear some more kind of as you as you make a bit more progress with that but that, that sounds um you know, genuinely really interesting um so we've got a couple of a couple of minutes left um so I thought an, an, a good idea uh, was to finish with kind of a bit of a, a quick fire round um so a couple of things from me so for you off the top of your head kind of three fundamentals for successful teaching and or coaching okay. um i had to think about this beforehand it's really hard when you, you narrow it down to three um but fundamentally i've got know your in, environment and you sort of when I say environment, like sort of what you can do within that environment. So um, how you apply your routines. So if we're out on the field, where are my coaches, whatever you want to call them, students, learners, where are they coming to? Where are they going to stand when they arrive at that uh, place? How am I going to uh, transition between activities in that environment? So it's that knowledge of your environment. Same applies in the classroom, know your classroom. Am I greeting the students at the door? Am I doing seating plans? And so I think whatever it is you approach um, with that environment, so whatever approach you take, sorry, I think you have to be consistent with. You have to establish a routine habits, create that habit formation, because as soon as you don't, you start opening yourself up to all sorts of issues with low level behavior, uh, low level disruption. So that's one. Um, tell me if you've got any questions to that you want to probe further uh second one know your students that's an obvious one isn't it but we, i talked earlier about the importance of initial assessment and just knowing your students inside that batch front can help no end with that because you find out okay not only what they know but what kind of things they like and things they're aware of beyond the subject which you which can help you connect new new knowledge to or new new ideas to so you know, we, we use metaphors and analogies all the time in, in our language. And so if I can relate things to what they already know, it's, it's going to make my life so much easier. It's going to help them as, as well. So knowing your students and, um, and you know, the, the most important one, I suppose, as a, a teacher, trainer, coach, and people might not agree with it, is just know your subject. Know your subject inside out and back to front because... Um, the more confident you are with your subject, the more confident you can be teaching that, supporting your students uh, or you know, in, any, in, any, in any capacity. But also not being, a, you know, it allows you to go off grid a little bit because you, you don't worry about not knowing because you do know. 
so knowing your subjects inside out is, is really important and um, just helps you to structure it. You know, if I'm, if I'm coaching out on the field, again, bad examples come in your way because I've not done it for a while. But I know if I know the sport and the way to develop skills sequentially over a period of time, it's going to help me no end than just come, them coming in and doing like random stuff that has no apparent link to, to what they've learned before and where they're going and so forth. So, yeah, that's me. What advice would you give to, to to Dan who was just starting out? If I could, if I could take you back, or I guess advice to anyone just starting out, teachers, coaches, what's there? Maybe that like golden nugget that you could you could give to them. Um, okay, this one, I, I think back to my time as a in my first two years as a teacher, I was terrible. I'm not gonna lie, I got it all wrong, and and I think that was largely because I left. I graduated, went straight into teaching without my qualification. Uh, so I did it in service. And um, I was quite young and I was naive and I was not too far off the age I was teaching. And so I really messed up the professional boundaries. Didn't get that right. Not saying I did anything particularly bad here. Just <laughs> Let's put that one out there. But um, I treated the students, I think, more like friends than students and uh, and that was fine to win them over and we had you know good laugh in the classroom which everyone thinks is a great thing and, and it goes some way to helping you to engage them until there comes a point where you need to start let's say cracking the whip for want of a better phrase and uh, and then I, I had you know I lost all respect of the students and um, yeah I, I really struggled because of that so my my advice would be, <laughs> there's, <laughs> sorry to say this, there's, there's an adage in, in education that don't smile to Christmas. Now, there's something in that, um, not that you shouldn't smile as soon as you, you greet your students, that's, that's wrong, but um, there's certainly something in that sort of maintaining high expectations and clear professional boundaries because if you don't do it um, from the start, the, the, the expectations, the boundaries naturally sort of not slip, that's a wrong way to put it, but they, you know, as you've spent a year with someone, you know, you, what's, what started out at the beginning changes, your relationship with them changes. And so go in high uh, with your expectations, with your boundaries and, and try and keep consistent um, as, for as long as, as you can. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was a, a big lesson for me. And, and, slightly off topic when I then tried to like remediate this issue I went the complete opposite end of the scale and I went super hardcore on them and uh, you know I think to some extent that did help with low level disruption but also made me very appear very cold to my students and so I was like quite um, robotic and you know and, and and they didn't see my personality so Hopefully, since then, uh, you know, I found a, a more of a happy medium. But yeah, you you got to experience it yourself, I suppose. But professional boundaries always have them in mind. Um, and my, my only other thing that I'd advise people of, uh, particularly a young Dan who always liked to please everyone, as you know, you be on side, get good feedback from people, um, is that you can't please everyone all of the time. And, um, and that, that is a bitter pill to swallow, but 
you, you know you're dealing with particularly yourself Dex in in your your sector you're dealing with potentially hundreds of young people a week and if there's only one or two in there that are you know oh that Dex is a bit of an idiot whatever I think you're, you're winning you're not going to have all 100 of them on side and so um you know you 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 can please the vast majority, but there'll always be some you can't and don't take it personally if you're not. And, and that's something I think that um, I certainly took, took a long time to get over. Um, you know, I would take it home with me and be like, oh, why is so-and-so really not, you know, or giving me bad feedback or said something. And, and I think that's important for everyone to remember, no matter how wonderful you are, there'll be someone who just doesn't get it and that's fine. Uh, and finally, from me, uh, is there any recommendations for someone you think I should look to speak to, someone we should look to get on, on the podcast um, in, the, in the future at all? Well, I think I'm really interested in your principal. I think she'd be a great acquisition if you could get Jo on. Um, I think she's got loads of amazing stories to tell, no doubt. Um, and so I would recommend Jo. Um, a good friend of mine who is the um, is the exact title escapes me, but it's like Chief Operations Director for SCL, Stuart Allen. I think I would um, recommend he uh, comes on your your podcast. And these are two quite senior leaders in the sector, so in the FE sector. So I'm I'm coming at it. I I'm not that au fait with who's a great coach in the area so i'm coming at it from it with an fe i here so that i'll just be clear on that so they're two very good leaders in the sector both with a background in sport and coaching who i think would offer a lot to your podcast and um if we're talking a sort of more practitioner level in fe again i'm sorry um a bit lame there uh, i would suggest uh, lindsay wilson who's at nottingham college and uh, Mike Tyler, who's at a college in Birmingham, but I'm sure you follow him on Twitter anyway, but he's got a lot of really interesting things to say, and as has Lindsay. And they're, you know, they're, they're approaching slightly differently, both, again, from sport background. So, um, yeah, that's, that's all I've got for you, mate. <laughs> no, that's great, Dan. Honestly, I just want to say thank you. Uh, as I said at the top of it, this is the, the first episode, um, the first kind of crack at this. So I appreciate your appreciate your time and, and willingness to, to, to get involved for me. And it's been good to been good to catch up and, and see you again. And hopefully we'll do again at some point in the not too distant future. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for inviting me as your first guest. That's like a real honour. I, I wish like, I wish you all the best with it because I think these sorts of things are great. And it was challenging. I'm not going to lie, you know, puts you on the spot. And, and that's, I think that brings the best out of people. Even if it is a load of waffle, you're sort of helping me connect, collect my thoughts as you're challenging me, challenging me with my questions. Um, and yeah, I think there is a lot to learn across the sectors, like you said, between coaching and teaching and instructing and things. And so hopefully the, you know, if you get a diversity of speakers, it'd be really interesting to learn from others because I'm, I'm always keen to learn from them. So yeah, thank you very much for your invite. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Podagogy, the teaching and coaching podcast. Another thank you to Dan for joining me today. You can find Dan on Twitter at Further Edagogy and you can also find and follow the podcast at Podagogy Podcast. Thank you again and goodbye.